Welcome to the Science Ramble. It's been a year since I started this podcast, and I thought I'd go a bit of a different direction now. So that's why I invited my friend Matthew to be with me on this show today. Hi there. Hi Matthew. Matthew is a PhD student and he works on enzymes, which are proteins which perform chemical reactions. But really he wants to talk about blood today because he's a secret vampire of, <laughs> of sorts. Uh, and I should also say this is a trigger warning we will be talking about blood in this episode. So if that makes you uncomfortable, please listen to another episode. There's plenty of good ones out there. But really, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you like blood and the metal ions involved in all of that as a chemist? Hi, Simon. Yeah, thank you for inviting me here today. Sure. I, I, just, I just think it's so cool how all these proteins floating around in their little red blood cell packages manage to bind oxygen. And not only do they do that, they do it via metals that are bound to the proteins themselves, in the case of haemoglobin, iron. And they need that iron to bind the oxygen just inherent to all the properties they have. Like if you think about blood, it's red, right? And if you think about rust, which is iron oxide, that's, that's also red. And it's not a coincidence. It's because of the iron in haemoglobin that it's that colour. Is that also why bruises turn weird yellowish, greenish colours after a while? Oh, no, that's, that's for a different reason. That's because of the thing that binds the iron, the heme group which is a long, complicated molecule with lots of double bonds that gets broken down slowly. And the, all those double bonds gives bruises those colour as the heme from the blood cells gets broken down. But heme is not only in haemoglobin, right? There's different proteins which bind oxygen in the body which contain this heme group. Yeah, we have the, the fine-tuning um, for special needs. In this case, with myoglobin, which is fine-tuned to bind oxygen tightly. You find it in, in muscles. You, you do a bit of exercise, right, Simon? Uh, not as much as you do, Matthew. Uh, but... But, but, but when you're exercising, you, you end up breathing pretty hard, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's at that stage the myoglobin is working very hard to get as much oxygen out of the blood into the muscles. Because you, you find myoglobin in your muscles. And because it pulls more strongly than haemoglobin, the myoglobin allows you to get as much oxygen into your muscles as possible. And... Actually, that's the reason why bloody steak turns red, isn't it? It's not actually blood which flows out of the steak, which was stored in the steak, but the myoglobin, which oh. is the equivalent of blood, is stored in the steak and flows out and reacts with air when it comes out of your steak. If you were It to was do just that. in the muscle cells. It was just the muscle cells that were stored. And it's not only found in muscles, it's also found in, in babies in the womb as well. They get their oxygen, like they get everything else, via the placenta which means they need to be getting their oxygen from the mother's blood. So, I assume you've never tried the experiment with grilling with the... Gr grilling babies. No, I, I don't think I have. So yeah. it's all about the tight binding to oxygen, which makes it draw the oxygen from the haemoglobin from the blood. And the haemoglobin itself has a bit of a cooperative binding going on, so it can draw the oxygen from the air. It's concentrating the oxygen up that chain. Yes, taking it from high to low. But it's not only iron which is involved in oxygen transport in biology, ah. is it? No, we've got other cool chemistries going on as well. Other cool chemistry. The best Do sorts tell. of chemistries. All the best chemistries are colourful. Sadly, my PhD doesn't have so much colour in, so I'm going to enjoy talking about it here. And you find hemocyanin in the blood of arthropods and mollusks, or some of them, in particular octopus and spiders. It's colourful because it contains copper, so... When it binds oxygen, it goes blue. So that, that's the colour of haemocyanin. 
So an octopus has blue blood, you're saying? Like an aristocrat. It's blue because of the copper. Rather than having iron, there are two coppers that between them bind one oxygen. When they're binding the oxygen, they're in copper two form. And perhaps unsurprisingly again, copper two when it's in water is again blue. So we're seeing lots of parallels here between hemoglobin and hemocyanin. Going back a little bit to the aristocrats there, it's really quite interesting what sort of cultural perception humans have had of blood through the history, right? If you imagine being in a time when you don't know all of these things scientifically about blood, before there's even such a thing as natural science as we know it today, you would still encounter blood. You would encounter blood in two broad settings. You would encounter it as a force of life and a force of death. If you were, say, wounded in battle or you cut yourself while performing work on the field, you would bleed and that blood loss would be dangerous, could lead to death. While at the same time, blood was an association of life in childbirth, for instance, or menstruation, which is a sign of fertility. So you find it at the start and at the end of life. At the start and the end of life. So it's no wonder that Galen's theory of the four humours has incorporated blood. This, this was one of the first theories about what blood was. Yes, it was one of the first theories of what blood is, and it placed it among four main bodily fluids. Black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. And they all sound very, very tasty. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. But interestingly, as the four humours, it's not a coincidence that they're called humours. This isn't comedy humour. It's not comedy, but it's related to personality. So the thought was that if you were a personality type which contained, say, more blood, then you would be more violent and more passionate, more, more uh. loving, for instance, warmer. So really, there's a, a broad approach to viewing the body in Galenic medicine. But also, it covers when things go wrong in the body, say, in disease. For instance, a fever to a Greek medic might have meant that there's too much blood in the body. Is this where the leeches come in? Yes, exactly. Not only leeches, also bloodletting with a knife, for instance. Really, it's a therapy for too much blood. But leeches aren't only used in ancient times. Leeches are still used today in cosmetic surgery because they have quite good extracting excess blood, say, from a swelling. And they're much more efficient at it than, say, a scalpel that cause less trauma to the skin. Where are you going for your cosmetic therapy, sir? <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm pretty just the way I am, you know that. So really, Galen's theory of the four humours determined medicine for almost 2,000 years, until the early modern times, all of medieval European medicine, at least, would have been based on that theory. So it was only when William Harvey, an English physician in the 17th century, more specifically 1628, wrote his book, the motocordatis of the movement of the heart, that it became known that blood circulates. It makes sense if you think about it, given that blood capillaries get really small in your muscles. So you wouldn't be able to trace that blood goes in cycles around the body just by looking at it with your naked eye. So William Harvey had to do demonstrations to disprove the thought that blood is made in the liver from food, distributed in one directional way to the muscles where it's being consumed. And he did this by showing that it's impossible to pass blood the wrong way up a vein. I hope the vein was not in someone at the time. No, the vein was from a snake, actually. Oh, that um, makes it so much better. In the public demonstrations of William Harvey, uh, he, he cut open a snake. And this is quite interesting in terms of the history of science, the transition from natural philosophy to early modern science, because... Back at the time, there was no professional scientist which could peer review your work. It was not like you convinced the field of the scientists of your theory. 
and then everyone believes you. It was more like you had to convince people directly in public demonstrations. There had to be nobility around to, with their name, vouch for the validity of your theory. So we've gone from the Four Humours to the Royal Variety Show then? We have gone from the Four Humours to the Royal Variety Show, yes. Not that I watch that much. <laughs> but really, blood isn't always the same in humans across their life, is it? And you might know a bit more about that as an athlete, actually. Yeah, blood constantly changes, but when it comes to carrying oxygen, there are a few things that athletes do to to try and optimise their oxygen carrying potential. For instance, if you live at altitude for around four weeks or, or longer, then you end up with a higher red blood cell count, more red blood cells in your blood, and that allows you to carry more oxygen. So it's a form of doping, really? Yes. Uh, the, same, the same idea as if you took out some of your blood and then added it back in later. But altitude training is allowed in sport. Indeed. So you won't have to confess anything on this podcast, uh, will you? I think, I think I'm okay. Thanks, Simon. Right, so altitude training is a temporary way of adapting your blood to oxygen. There are more permanent ones in nature too, as there always is. There's another way that a different species does things, right? And these are permanent sometimes by evolution. Yes, this is part of the reason why, why I decided on this topic for the podcast. I just happened to read a, a paper on Mexican cavefish. Mexican cavefish, they sound like a fancy fish. <laughs> only, only the best fish on this podcast. Evokes images of tequila and a nice <laughs> bar, like swimming around. Isn't there a thing where there's a Mexican cavefish at the bottom of every bottle of tequila? Uh, I, th I think it's something like that. It might be a worm instead. But, a but worm, yeah. The same sure. sort of idea. There's also little oxygen in a bottle of tequila. Yeah. 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 Point of these Mexican cavefish is that they're swimming at the bottom of these Mexican caves where... Only Mexican caves. Only Mexican caves. We wouldn't want them crossing over to the US border. <laughs> no, that would be terrible. They'd be arrested. <laughs> but at the bottom of these caves, the oxygen concentrations are really very low. And what's particularly useful about this species of Mexican cavefish is they have very similar relatives that swim around in rivers which allows scientists to compare the adaptations of the cavefish in their low oxygen environment to the adaptations of the river fish, which have more oxygen. So then what have they found in their study? Perhaps if, if you're thinking along the same lines of humans at altitude producing more red blood cells, you'd think the cavefish might have more red blood cells, which when the scientists looked at the proportion of the blood that is red blood cell, indeed is found to be correct. A greater proportion of the blood in cavefish is red blood cell than it is in river fish. But it's not the number of the red blood cells in this case, I think. That's no. the surprising bit. Confident, they went on and measured the number of red blood cells, the density of red blood cells in the cavefish blood. And awkwardly, they found out that it's lower in the cavefish than it is in the river fish. So being a PhD student myself, I imagine that's where they got kind of frustrated. Yeah. Had a bit of a middle of PhD blues. <laughs> Good bit of confusion there. Who knows how long it took them to, to move on to the next experiment. But they did find something else. They did. They looked at it a little more closely under a microscope and they actually found that the red blood cells in the cavefish are larger than those in the river fish, which allows them to carry more haemoglobin. And therefore more oxygen. Correct. But really that's a problem having a larger volume in a cell compared to the surface area because the diffusion rate of the oxygen from the cells outwards to the muscle depends on the surface area, but the storage capacity depends on the volume. With size, volume grows a lot faster than the surface, so it'd be less efficient at transferring oxygen, would it? Yes. This is a decision that the cavefish at some point has had to make along its evolutionary past. They're living at the bottom of these caves in the deep darkness. They don't actually need to move very fast. Things might not even be able to see them to catch them. The things they're hunting might not be able to see them. 
So they actually live quite a sedentary, slow lifestyle. They don't really need to transfer the oxygen from their red blood cells to the muscles all that quickly. It's much more important that they can get as much oxygen as they can from the water. So apart from very slow Mexican cavefish, what other adaptations to low oxygen have animals come up with? So I had some good fun looking into this for the podcast. It turns out alpacas and llamas living at high altitudes, right? Up in around Machu Picchu and other similar parts of the world, they have hemoglobin that's been modified to bind oxygen more strongly. So that it can take up more from the air with the same volume of blood. Correct. Another fun example is that of crayfish, which live down at the bottom of muddy rivers. They can actually control where their blood goes so that the oxygen goes to the area where it's important. Much like in humans when your core accumulates the blood when it's cold outside and you lose feeling in your extremities, you get a bit numb. That's because the body is conserving heat. But in this case, they're conserving the oxygen to their nerves and brain because those are the areas that need it most. It's not only entire organisms which need to cope with low levels of blood. Sometimes it's cells and unfortunately sometimes it's unhealthy cells. One example of that is cancer cells which grow at a large rate in parts of the body where they're not meant to grow. Parts of the body which are not meant to support a lot of oxygen need. Cancer cells are in a state of oxygen deprivation. How do they cope with that? How do they pour more oxygen out of the surroundings? As you say, the greedy cancer cells use as much oxygen as they can and end up depleting the oxygen in the environment. They tackle this through metabolism. They shift their metabolism away from oxidative phosphorylation, which, as the name suggests, uses a lot of oxygen, towards glycolysis, which doesn't. Which is the same process which, in sprinters, for instance, generates energy really fast without having to transport oxygen all the way to the muscles but doesn't produce as much energy per food molecule. So cancer cells make a trade-off then. Yeah, cancer cells are using this energy continually. They're burning all your resources, all your oxygen, and all your food stores, and this low energy production. Is there also something like too much oxygen adaptation? Ah, so I think this is maybe the coolest example I came across, and comes in the form of an animal with a cool name as well. Cooler than Mexican cavefish. Well, how about crocodile icefish? Crocodile icefish, oh my god, I don't want to run across one of those. No, they're... they're Sounds like a Jurassic Park monster. They've got a face to go with that. They'll make your blood run ice cold, partly because theirs does as well. And theirs has no colour. Completely transparent. Completely. Because it's not carrying any haemoglobin, no haemocyanin, no red blood cells, nothing. Because they can get away with it in their higher oxygen environment. And why is it a high oxygen environment? They're swimming around in really cold, icy waters, and cold waters carry more oxygen. So they have access to more oxygen, they can do away with the haemoglobin, they don't need to be as efficient at transporting oxygen. This is also partly, again, because they're moving quite slowly, so they don't need it too much. But there's also different reasons why often cells have machinery to deal with oxygen, and that's that oxygen at high concentrations or when it's uncontrolled, is quite toxic. There's a reason why cells use oxygen to burn away their food and generate the maximum amount of energy. That's because oxygen is such a strong oxidant that comes from give oxygen, which is a way of extracting energy from something like a carbohydrate or a fat or a protein. So if you think about it, humans are just meat, right? Well, apart from the bones, but mostly meat and you can eat meat by using oxygen to burn it. Therefore, you should also be able to use oxygen to burn your own meat. Your cells burning themselves up from the inside out. 
and they don't do that. And the reason why they don't do that is because they very tightly control the oxygen to only do the reactions which it's supposed to do and minimize the side reactivity. So we have another scary name here because <laughs> when oxygen um, is in the air, it's not very aggressive to your skin straight away. It needs an activation. So if oxygen takes the first electron, it becomes much more reactive and it's called a superoxide. Damn. And the superoxide can chew up almost anything. So that's why you only really want to make it when the substrate, which is meant to react with, is straight nearby. And there's another protein, an enzyme, called a cytochrome, which uses that principle. So it's quite similar to hemoglobin in the sense that it has a heme group and it has an iron, iron in the middle, and then it has the oxygen coming in. But instead of taking it and releasing it, it puts electrons into that oxygen, makes a superoxide in a controlled way, and then uses that superoxide to attack a different substrate to break it apart, to break apart, say, a drug molecule in your cells. It's involved in drug metabolism, for example. Now, that only happens when the substrate is already bound. So there's this very tight regulation of oxygen binding and of oxygen reduction to the binding of the substrate. But really, too much oxygen was a historic reality for life, wasn't it? Yes. In the past, concentrations of oxygen in the atmosphere have been much higher, which has allowed for organisms to survive without these oxygen transporting proteins. In fact, they needed to protect themselves. And one example of this is um, tyrosinases, which bind oxygen and then bind it into compounds like melanin, the, the skin pigment compound. And by doing that, they protect you from the oxygen in the higher concentration. In fact, one speculative theory is that this tyrosinase is the ancestor to the oxygen transporting proteins, hemoglobin and hemocyanin that we now know today. So what? evolution uses whatever it can get its hands on. Yeah, it scavenges around. Someone described it changing the parts of a plane while it's flying. You really have to use whatever proteins are already around and repurpose them. That happens quite a lot. If the part of the plane doesn't work, it's going to fall out the air. But if it does work, well, the plane's going to keep flying and evolution's going to keep progressing. So really the oxygen transport cycle the oxygen cycle in metabolism has been crucial for much of the history of life to the extent that we think that the simultaneous presence of oxygen and compounds which can react with oxygen over long time scales indicate the presence of life because something needs to maintain that sort of non-equilibrium process and when people look to the stars and try to see life on different planets one of the things they look for is the presence of oxygen and of other biosignature gases at the same time which could indicate life. I guess that's a bloody good place to end then. Thank you for listening to the Science Ramble. The show releases on the first of every month, so join us again next time for some brand new science.